0: Oh, I'm going to introduce a new idea and, uh, with all the familiar themes that you've probably thought of, but I'm going to name it toxic femininity, because this idea of toxic masculinity is actually born out of what is truly the problem, which is toxic femininity. Let's talk about it. This is the gaining my perspective podcast, and you're hanging here with me, Wendy Cunningham. You're here to get empowered, inspired, informed, and encouraged as we navigate the everyday journey of this crazy life. Stick around, cause we're gonna laugh and we're gonna learn. And above all else, we're gonna gain perspective. Hey guys, happy February. I, for one, am shocked it's already February and grateful that it is February because January was nutty nuts and didn't even count. And February 1st, I was like, let's start 2023. Let's get going. I got goals. I finally have like new energy coming into 2023. So I am excited and ready to make this totally different than 2020, 2021, or 2022. Quite frankly, the three years of doom, I feel like, at least in my life in so many ways, but also full of a tremendous amount of blessing. So not trying to be negative, but I wanted to give you a little update because I flew again. (laughs) I flew again. Out to California. So, if you were listening to my last episode, I talked a little bit about the power of my word for this year, which is prayer, and how God immediately used a circumstance on an awful plane flight out to Maui to give me some practice in prayer. And uh, I was grateful for that. And there was certainly blessing in that, despite (laughs) not loving being on a very, very turbulent flight. And of course, I had a new opportunity. As I flew to California just last week with my littlest, my seven-year-old, we went out and I told you you're free to judge me because I did go to Disney and it was very magical. Um, But here's the trip. This is totally different. Different situation. And this is the crippling power of the enemy and how he uses fear. And we talked about all these things on the last episode. So I hope you'll go back and give it a listen But um, anxiety showed up and reared its ugly head in a different and new way. And I think I've said this, but I am writing a book. I am doing it. It It's happening about a Christian's journey battling through anxiety because so frequently pastors or the Bible or other Christians will just tell you, you don't have enough faith. I hate that phrase because the Bible says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. So it is not a matter of faith. It is a matter of belief. It is a matter of doubt. It is a matter of fear. All of these things are just completely of the flesh, and we Christians are no less susceptible to the things of the flesh, but we do not have to battle with fleshly weapons. We can battle with spiritual weapons, so I'm writing a book about that. In the meantime, I'm battling it here live in action on the ground. So here's the deal. I am in Nashville. I am with my seven-year-old and a very good friend of mine, and we are waiting to board our plane, And I am not nervous. I am not anxious. I'm actually just like, I just flew to Maui. Surely I can fly just to LA, like no big deal. I get in line to board. I actually paid for an upgrade for A, if you're familiar with Southwest, like it's general boarding. And when we went to check in, we all got C's and I wanted all three of us to sit together. And so I upgraded myself to be an A so that I could get us a seat, save us a row. So I get in line um, to get on as an A. And I'm standing there in line reading my Bible on my phone, just completely calm, not even thinking about being nervous at all. And my just wonderful Apple Watch alerts me for the very first time ever having worn my Apple Watch that my heart rate has spiked. And if you are someone who has ever dealt with anxiety or can imagine, I look at my watch and I see... You know, da- high heart rate or whatever. And, and it's all red and, you know, lots of exclamation marks on the watch. And uh, although I had not until that moment been aware of my heart rate going up for whatever reason, as you can imagine, now that I'm aware of my heart rate being high, my heart rate <laughs> absolutely starts to skyrocket. And I have to tell you, I did not have a single symptom of a racing heart, did not feel it in my chest didn't feel like I'm panting, like no anxiety symptoms are manifesting outwardly to my knowledge, to my consciousness. And yet here my heart is starting to race, just getting ready to get on the plane. And my watch alerts me of it. So my heart rate spiked to like 165 as I'm standing perfectly still, which obviously is not normal and not great and sends me into a complete spin. I get out of line. I go over to my friend and I give her my my pass and I say, "You're gonna have to get on as Wendy right now because I will wait until the C group with my son and I will just try to calm down." And I call my husband and I'm like, "Dom, uh, my heart's racing for no reason. Like, what's going on?" He's like, "Well, are you freaking out?" I was like, "I wasn't, but now I am," (laughs) and so I have to start storming the heavens again right there in the airport, just like, "Oh my goodness, Lord! I know that you are sovereign over this. What on earth, like?" What is even happening? Is this real? Do I need to give this any like actual, you know, medical attention? Like I understand there is something physically happening in my body, but I also had the wherewithal to understand absolutely the enemy uses things in my physical body in the spiritual war against me. And I ended up getting on the plane. But I have to tell you, for the entirety of that flight to Houston, Texas, for the two-hour layover, layover, and then for the you know three and a half-hour flight from Houston to Santa Ana, my heart rate never came below like one ten. Like it just stayed high. And of course, I'm obsessively checking it on my Apple Watch. And the wisdom of my friend Andy, who loves the Lord and she's praying with me. Bless her. She's Like maybe stop checking, (laughs) maybe stop obsessing with your heart rate. And so I did pray again without ceasing to intervene in my physical body. And I failed in in the flight. I mean, I I managed to stay calm and stay on the plane. Obviously, I, I succeeded in going to my destination, which I'm super grateful for. Because wouldn't you know, as soon as I step out of that airport in Santa Ana and get in the Uber, as soon as my heart immediately goes back down into the 80s. Like for the first time in six hours, seven hours, my heart rate just immediately calms down. I I was actually, the entire time, had I not been wearing my watch, I probably would not have been aware of any of that happening. I did get a second alert, heart rate alert, even though I was like obsessively checking my heart and knew it um, that my heart rate was high on my layover. You know, so it was the strangest experience. I've never been actually aware perhaps that's what happens when you have a panic attack or an anxiety attack or whatever perhaps your heart just races the whole time and you're just not aware of it because if I had not been wearing my apple watch I think I would not have been aware of it and God used this as an opportunity to reveal to me that I am still depending on lots of external things for his peace I want some device, some doctor, some medicine, some diagnosis, some external thing to tell me I'm okay. When God's like, I'm telling you right now, I'm the source of your peace. I'm the source of your answers. Look to me. So, of course, knowing I calmed down, talking to my naturopath after the fact, she's like, I'm really glad this happened to you. Because now you can really associate so much of what is happening in your body is happening because of your mind your mind is set and the spiritual attack that's coming against you in the form of fear and anxiety and I can't argue with that if I were sitting in my living room teaching my kids homeschool and my heart rate suddenly spiked maybe I could argue like no it is has nothing at all to do with anxiety <laughs> but here I was and absolutely the timing getting on the plane to stepping out of the airport I have this you know thing register so wild I just want to share that with you guys as a continuation from last episode That We're still on the ground here battling. We're still having things be revealed, but God is using prayer and using this battle. Our trials, there are such blessings in our trials, guys. Don't just wish them to pass. Don't just wish to be through them, but really acknowledge and recognize what God is teaching you in the midst. Because I'm there. I'm learning. I'm doing it. I did not wear my watch on the flight home, and lo and behold, I had a perfectly normal and very peaceful flight. <laughs> Perhaps my heart was racing. I am unaware, and blissfully so. So there you go. There's an update on this next flight. I don't have to fly again till June, to my knowledge, so let's hope I can get a hold of myself between now and then. Okay, today I want to talk about something completely unrelated to prayer. You're glad. You're like, okay, we don't want to hear any more of your drama, Wendy friend. I have been stewing on this and thinking about this and and this topic, and potentially it's even like a book or some extended, expanded place to study and dissect and engage with. But the idea of toxic femininity, because here we're very familiar with the phrase of toxic masculinity, and just as the enemy works, and just as our sad very left world here our leftist culture here in the united states works usually where they're trying to drive our attention you can just do a complete 180 and look in the opposite direction and that's actually where the problem lies right i have missed this actually i mean i i haven't missed it entirely right i know that the fact that we are you know the term toxic masculinity was born out of the you know marxist left and their agenda absolutely i knew that much but i as i started to like dissect where this was coming from and where it was rooted in it truly is coming from wildly embittered leftist women right and not just the feminist movement in general but that's a part of it you know that was kind of a a precursor to what I would call the toxic feminist movement, which we're currently living through. So let's, I just wanted to kind of dissect this and go through some of the things that I've been recognizing, thinking about, you know, gaining perspective on, if you will. And actually just a a piece of this puzzle was kind of um, given to me last night as I was having this conversation and kind of introducing this topic to a new friend of mine. And she pushed it back even further. So I thought... That it actually kind of was born out of the, you know, feminist movement. And although that wasn't the aim of the feminist movement, I do not believe that the aim of the feminist movement was to demasculate men or to target masculinity as the, you know, the evil that we now want to say that it is today. I don't think that was the goal of the feminist movement. And I'm not against entirely everything that came from the feminist movement, but The more we move in this wild and radical and toxic direction where everything of God is being erased and abolished, I have to go, gosh... More harm came from that than good, and actually, even the good that came from it, I wonder if it's biblical. I wonder if it is for our good, not just good in a terms of a cultural context, but is it for our good, right? Because some of the things that we fight for, and I'll be fully honest to say, even, you know, patriotism, which obviously I'm a very big patriot, love me some America, even that can be idolatry, you know, idolatry and distracting and maybe not even for our good you know, in the end, America's got to go down. Like we've got to fall because for God's plans to take place for the end times, like nobody survives it, right? Like, I mean, you know what I mean? Nobody, nobody, uh, no country, no nation other than who God chooses to lift up is going to survive. There's nothing we can do to maintain America if God has it falling. And I want to be in alignment with God's will. So I'm always just putting myself in check and go, hey, Even though this is good, is it for our good? So I'm going to pose some of those questions. But the piece that my friend last night introduced me to or kind of brought to my attention, um, I thought, you know what? You're totally right. That is kind of where it started. It didn't start. The toxic masculinity, you know, consequence, (laughs) because I know it's kind of a movement, but it's really a consequence of a movement, this toxic masculinity or that phrase. I don't think toxic masculinity is actually a thing. Um... I think that phrase is a consequence of a movement, but it started earlier than I suspect. And it started, when we think back, you know, 200 years ago, a lot of men were very present at the home in that they were farmers or even up into, you know, the early nineteen uh, hundred. excuse me, men were business owners and who worked at their shoe store or their grocery or their, you know... Um, whatever, whatever business they had founded, who worked there? Well, likely their wife and their children, their children. And where did they live? Probably above the shop or very nearby, right? So even when dad was air quotes at work or working, he was still very present with the family, right? Still very much in engaged in a specific role in his family, as was his wife engaged in a specific role in that family unit. The family was The family was united in a different way than we are today. It was connected. It was one unit, right? They were working together towards an end. And, you know, we saw that the divorce rates were not what they are today. And, you know, you could argue and dive in, and the left loves to do this, that nobody was happy and women were oppressed. And, you know, that's when toxic masculinity was like rearing its ugly head. And we can argue all those things. And, I mean, you can position it however you want. But it is interesting that our family unit used to work much more united with specific specified roles. And it worked. It worked out. When men stopped being business owners, when men stopped farming, when men stopped providing actually with their hands, like it, like the Bible says that Adam is to, you know, work the ground with the sweat of his brow, like actually work hard and provide for his family. When, when men started to go work for other men, leave the house, they had to just by the nature of that, start to disengage from the family a little bit, right? And the roles shifted a touch where mom now moved into what has been biblically given to the father as the role of disciplinarian, the role of instructor, the role of disciple. Um, that's all given to the father in the Bible. Like, instruction, uh, child rearing, discipline, all of that is biblically given to the father. But as the father was removed from the daily life of the home and put into employment, as that started to shift, we started to see the gender roles, to use a term I kind of hate, shift a little bit, right? And we started to see some of those biblical roles given over to the wife. Now, my husband, you know, he had kind of a hyper uh, example of this in the fire service where he, when he left the home, he would leave for 48 hours straight at minimum. So not only was he just gone during the day, he was gone during the night. He was gone always. So I had to fully be mom and dad while he was gone. And this went on for several years while we were raising our kids, you know, but my husband was very aware of what he, that lack. He was, he wasn't, Um, As so many men are, and this is not, I'm not, please don't accept condemnation from this, but as so many men are excused, they feel like, oh, that is not my responsibility. My responsibility is not at home. My responsibility is outside of the home. My responsibility is to provide for my family. That is not wrong. Your responsibility is to provide for your family, but that does not come at the cost of your responsibilities at home. My husband was very aware of this and he, I am so grateful would come home from sometimes working 48 hours straight, not sleeping very much. He had to you know, he had to get on the ambulance and do calls all night long, some nights. He would come home and he would not go to sleep. He would come home and he would come re-engage immediately in his roles as father in our house. I was very grateful for that because I knew a lot of um, firefighters who would go home and be like, "Nope, I have been at work. I'm tired. This is you, you kind of hold down the house." I go do my thing and imagine how that feels if you are a working mom and your husband comes home from his job and does not feel that it's his burden to share it with you at home, even though you're also working, right? So yes, bitterness comes from this model for sure. But my husband also recognized that when in his absence, because of his absence, he had to be very present as the disciplinarian in our house while he was there. Not the opposite. And I've seen this work with a close uh, family member in my house where he felt the opposite, where because he was not around his children often, he did not want to come home and be the disciplinarian for his kids because he wanted them to view him as loving. And, you know, because he was always gone, he had to make up for being gone. Again, this is the the failure of this entire system. And again, it is what it is. I'm not, I'm just making observations, right? I'm not trying to condemn and say, this is a dumb system or whatever. There are just consequences of the way that we have our culture working these days, our world, right? So because he was trying to make up for the fact that he was gone, he did not act as the disciplinarian. And what happened? His kids started to become crazy and wild, right? and that was a burden for his wife when he was gone and my husband was always aware of that and would say that to me that i don't it is my job to make sure that the kids are under control when i have to leave so that you are not burdened by my lack of apps my lack of presence rather any more than you have to be and so he was very firm he still is with my kids as the disciplinarian and i'm also that way i'm not saying it's only his role or only his job although biblically you might argue that it is. But it, he took on those roles proactively when I feel like a lot of men have stepped out of those roles, right? I also think there's no coincidence that the enemy has completely lifted up sports, specifically on Sundays. I mean, we have football, we have sports you can watch from the day, the second the sun rises on Sunday till the second the sun goes down and well beyond. And I, that's intentioned. That is the enemy working in the men in our lives to distract them from their going to church, being the faith leader of their household. Nope. They'd rather sit on the couch and watch TV, watch sports, be obsessed with sports, know every sports figure, know every sports hero, and not know the characters in the Bible, not teach our children, not disciple our children, but sit on the couch and watch TV on the day we should be in church, right? That's a, that's a digression, but All of these things work together against us, right, and work together against our men. So men, although you are the victims of this toxic masculinity, right, that's what you're being accused of and you are victims. I absolutely do not. I think this is just a garbage movement and doing so much more harm than good. You know, demasculating men is just awful and sad and not biblical, Although you are the victims, you are certainly doing yourselves no favors. (laughs) You are certainly doing yourselves no favors when you're sitting on the couch all day on Sunday. And again, I'm not, I'm making an observation. Please hear my heart. I'm not trying to bring condemnation, just challenge opportunity for growth. When you are not disciplining your children, when you are not engaged with discipling your children, when you are leaving your wife with a burden, be it whether she is at home or whether she is a working wife. Either way, some cases, if she is present at home, you have a you have more of a responsibility, not less, although you might think to make sure that when you are gone, your presence is still felt in that home. So as we started to move men out of the house and start to work and be employees and be gone for hours and hours, the majority of the day, and then be exhausted and feel like, oh, I'm off the hook, I don't have to come home and engage with my children. Instead, I get to come home, put my feet up, watch TV, and my wife is going to cook and all of that. I'm thinking of the culture of the, you know, 40s and 50s when I, uh, when I'm speaking about this, women started to grow bitter as they should in certain respects, right? I mean, I would say in that time, the majority of women were likely home still raising kids, but also doing all of the duties of the house and, and men were abandoning their responsibilities biblically at that time and women were growing bitter and this is truly the seed of the feminist movement right that was born out of that season in the 60s 70s and into the 80s and even to today is this idea that women now deserved they wanted but they deserved and needed to work (laughs) <laughs> they should want to be out of the house while well, my husband's out of the house I'm bitter because he gets to leave and doesn't have to deal with all of the burden of home I have to keep everything spinning and then he comes home and feels like he doesn't have to engage in the family he doesn't have to engage in his biblical roles of raising our children you know what never mind I'm over it I'm going to go I want to get a job and that seed that was planted has grown or grew into the femininity The uh, hyper, I'll call it the hyper femininity movement, hyper feminism that was born from that, right? Where we started to really, really disconnect. Men did it first and then women abandoned, right? Men abandoned their biblical roles, their gender biblical roles that were assigned to them. And women then in turn started to abandon their biblical instinctual roles that were given to them. I would even suggest, and although I am a woman who does enjoy my voting rights, I would even suggest that this is an example. The women's suffrage movement is an example of where we thought more of this is good for women as opposed to is this for our good? And let me pose it this way. I've thought a little bit about this. I know lots of women, as I'm sure... You probably do, too. Maybe you are this person who voted against what your husband voted for in the last election. There are a lot of families that are split on this, right, where somebody voted for a Democrat and somebody voted for a Republican in the same house, which in a sense cancels out the other's vote, right, and um, creates that division. Now, we I, I again, I know lots of friends whose husband is on the opposite page of them politically or even spiritually. And I don't know how that happens. And by that, I mean, I don't know how they're still married or what that marriage looks like when you cannot discuss or come into agreement on things in your own house on such big topics as politics and religion, right? Politics and religion, for good reason, are things that you do not want to talk about at the dinner table. Although at a dinner I went to last night, those are the only two things that we talked about. (laughs) And it was the first time hanging out with that couple, so I think that's kind of hilarious. But those are rightfully things that you don't want to necessarily talk about at the dinner table because they are very heated and they hold very um, profound implications. If you are a Christian, that is going to influence everything about your life, right? How you raise your kids, what you teach your kids. Do you go to church? What do you prioritize? What kind of friends do you have? Right? And similarly, if you are conservative or if you are way more on the left, this is going to influence what you want, the direction you want your children to move and what are the things, the schools of thoughts, the ideologies that you would like your children to have, what kind of schools and peers do you expose them to, what kinds of programs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you and your husband are not on the same page about one or the other of these things, I do not know how you are raising kids effectively. Now, I say that to say, these are things that need to be deeply discussed, challenged, and worked out in a marriage. And th- they need to, like, you need to get to a place where you're unified on these things. Otherwise, again, I don't know how you're thriving in your marriage. And I don't know how you would be successfully raising children. Now, again, I'm, this is not about condemnation. Maybe you're like, well, Wendy, it's this way. This is how. And please email me if you're like, my husband thinks the exact opposite is me or my wife. And we are successfully married and love each other so much and blah, blah. I would love to hear it. Tell me how. How do you navigate that? Do you not talk about it? Have you agreed or disagree? You know, I will say... Ten years ago, you probably could do it, no problem, because my dad was a Democrat, my mom was a Republican, neither of them knew a thing about politics, so it was fine. <laughs> Maybe that's how it is. You're just not engaged. And whatever, that could be, right? But it is my opinion that these are things that divide a house, not that need to be, you have to be unified on these things. And so even the women, the, the suffrage movement and women's right to vote, was it for a good? Did it allow for us to be divided against our husbands? Did it allow for us to cancel out our husband and therefore cancel out our voice as a household? Are we not supposed to be, I'm going to use this word, submitted to our husband? That doesn't mean whatever he thinks I automatically think. But does that mean that we come to an agreement, that we talk, that he sees me as an equal, and we debate, and we have hard conversations, and we you know advocate for our own point of view so that we can come to an agreement and be unified in our decision of who are we voting for yes i think that's what it should look like but instead we advocated in our suffrage movement and again i'm i think that it is good that women can vote i'm not our, i'm not saying we should have never done that or any of those things i'm just again making an observation of something that is good but may or may not be for our good. When I say for our good, I mean for our good as women, for our good as men, for our, for the good of our marriages, for the good of our faith, for the good of our children rearing. Like not just for our good, like it is good that women can vote. Yes, it is a good thing that women can vote, but is it for our good in a larger context? I'm unsure, but that is something that was born out of the beginnings of the unsettling of women, the the desire to be unsubmitted to our husbands, to be looked at, not just as peers by our husband and by God, because we came from Adam's rib, right? Women came from man's side. We didn't come from Adam's heel. Like we didn't come from under Adam or, you know, truly below him. We did not come from the top of his head, meaning like above him. We came from directly beside him. We are literally at his side that is what our role is from god is women are the helper right in genesis we are given as the helper to man i think that is so important for women to understand it now and perhaps if we just really understood what that was and what that meant and and the like gift that that is to women we wouldn't have desired anymore Right. And it would be easier for us to submit to our husbands, knowing we're not submitting like just being underneath him. We're submitting being beside him, joined beside him in partnership, in agreement, coming to be united, one flesh to come on and take things on together. Right. So then out of this, we also see, you know, coming out of the 50s, we see the women's desire to work, be very career oriented, um, we're expecting as women, you know, equal pay. And again, that is totally a good thing, equal pay. And yet, is it for our good? Is it for our good? I, this is the perspective I am trying to gain. Is it something that is for our good, biblically from God in a greater context, not just in the context of our career? And what is my one hour of time worth? Is it for our good? Because perhaps if it wasn't, we would be more entrepreneurial from home. If we were not getting equal pay in the workplace which we, you know, may or may not still be getting equal pay in the workplace, maybe we would be compelled to be more entrepreneurial from home like I am. Like I, uh, that whole thing is really funny to me because I'm like, well, I I have made more than my husband basically our whole marriage. And I've also been home, homeschooling my children and present with my kids and in my pajamas most every day. (laughs) So it's not one or the other. And because I know I don't, I can work really hard outside of the home and still not be compensated what I'm quote unquote worth, according to me, according to culture, then I can just find a way to work from home. And, and again, go back to that entrepreneurial spirit where we originally were working at home with the sweat of my brow, with my family unit intact. But also we have to recognize women are different than men. We are weaker by biblical standard Like that's what it says in the Bible. It's not like that's, bad, I'm happy to be weaker than my husband. I do not want to actually be able to physically pick up my husband. I enjoy that he can physically pick me up and I cannot physically pick him up. This doesn't make me feel less than. It's perfectly fine. I'm okay. It's not derogatory that I am weaker physically than my husband. I'm actually happy to have him go get the firewood at, you know, 11 p.m. and not me. It's perfectly fine. That gender role suits me just great. But also we do carry babies. And when we do carry such babies, we do expect that you pay us to not be there, to not be there. I'm gonna go home for at least six weeks. I'm gonna ask for six months. I'm gonna be mad that some countries give their people a year. Uh, I'm gonna be bitter. I'm gonna ask for equal pay. And then I'm gonna ask that I get to be gone for a year when a man will never ask for such a thing. Do you see how there isn't equal? Like that's just not equal. It's okay. Again, this is more of a question of equity. (laughs) I want equal results. Regardless of my equal input, I want equal results. The maternity leave. And then how many women have have their children and then all of those instincts that they thought they had suppressed sufficiently come to the surface and turns out they want to be at home with those children. They do not want to go back into the workplace or they're not as effective because they're distracted by their child at, at home who is sick or whatever millions of things that happen once you have children. If they're sick from school, right, then now you're at home, your your brain is at home with your sick child, even though you're at work trying to be the best contributor, because you're a mom. And that changes everything about your body and your your brain and the chemistry and your instincts and all of those things as it should. So now are you equally contributing at your work, right? You're suppressing, we are suppressing, and again, this is not, everybody does not feel this way. Not every mom wants to be home. Not every woman wants to be a mom. But again, I think that that is more it comes more from culture than actually from our innate instincts. Because 200 years ago, everybody was a mom. There wasn't a question as to whether or not you're going to be a mom. Unless you couldn't be a mom. And then it was a heartbreak, right? If, if you were barren, it was a heartbreak. You were, you were a mom. It wasn't a question of whether or not you wanted to be. We are disregarding our natural callings and our instincts Because culture tells us we're not supposed to want those things. Intro toxic femininity. This is where toxic femininity is born. And I say it's toxic because it's toxic to ourselves as women. And it's toxic certainly to men. Our biblical roles are men are to love and women are to respect, right? Men are to love women. Man is to love his wife. And the wife is to respect her husband. So let's just, it is a husband and wife role. But I also believe it is also a woman and man role, right? But let's keep it in the husband and wife context. Men often, um, you know, they're supposed to love their wife and we feel like that's the easier job. That is not the easier job. Men are not naturally inclined to love. That's why it's a command. If it were a natural instinct for man to just love his wife because of the curse... Back in Genesis it says that we will lust after our husband and he will rule over us. This is a result of the curse. So it is not in his natural instinct to be empathetic or or loving in the way that women desire to be loved. It is not their natural instinct. Just like it is not because of the curse, it is not our natural instinct women to respect our husband. We feel like well if a woman does It's like this catch 22. If a woman would respect me, then I would love her. And the woman is like, well, if you would love me, I would respect you. No, it's a commandment. It's a command from God. We are to respect our husband. That is not our natural instinct, especially with culture, the way that it is. We are so disrespectful. We are, I'm, I'm guilty of this. This is totally speaking to myself. We are totally falling into the enemy's trap By not heeding that warning and hearing that, that this is our command is to respect our husband, to respect men. Men, your job is to love your wife, to love women in in the way that they want to be loved, not in the way that you desire to love. In, In love as Christ loved the church and love your body as you love your, or love your wife as you love your own body, right? So you're supposed to love your wife more than you love your own physical body. Do for your wife, die for your wife, basically. Love like Christ loved the church. What did Christ do for the church? Remind me. Oh, yeah. Dire consequences. Lay your life down kind of love. Lay your own desires kind of love. Self-sacrificing to the nth degree kind of love. They for sure have the harder job. Our job is just to respect. And the toxic femininity movement has abandoned that command wildly. Not only did we start with, I'm bitter at man. Then it was, I want to be equal to man. Not in just the partnership way that God intended us to be, but equal to in a cultural context. Then we've moved to, this is where it becomes toxic, we don't need men. I truly believe that there will be a movement to just eliminate men entirely from the picture. Y'all, since the 80s, we have seen testosterone drop 70% that is insane. That is not a win. That is not good. There's nothing good about that. But of course, the toxic masculinity movement sees that as like a huge win. Like we are demasculating men. That needs to happen. Hallelujah. Praise God. This is of the enemy. Because men were designed to be literally designed, given testosterone, designed to be masculine and manly. That is their design. Their call is to by the sweat of their brow, provide for their family, physically do hard labor work. That is what a man is designed, created to do. And we are trying to rip that out of him, like out of his very being, out of his very chemistry. (laughs) We're trying to eliminate it. So I don't need a man or I'm equal. I want to be equal to man in a cultural context. I don't even need a man. I can be self-sufficient. This is the toxic femininity. I am superior to men. Women are better than men. Men are evil. Everything about a man is evil. Masculinity is evil. Masculinity is oppressive. This is the message, right? This is what we're supposed to know. This is what we're teaching boys. To be manly is to be evil. To be manly is to be oppressive. No woman will want you if you are manly. This is a lie from the pit of hell. I have no desire. I'm just absolutely unattractive. And I'm okay to say it. I'm unattracted to a feminine man not attractive. I know I'm not alone. I'm not afraid to say it. You know, I will always say the scary things. I was talking to two of my girlfriends that are in their late thir- late 20s, early 30s about dating. They're not married. And this is a thing. There's a lot of late 20s, early 30s women who are not married, which is a product of the feminist movement and absolutely a product of what I'm calling the toxic feminist movement that we're seeing these women that should be married are not married. Why is that happening? And I was talking to them about dating. They're beautiful women, lovely women. Of course, I was of the mind that I'm not even looking for a husband. I'm going to college. I'm not even looking for a husband. I'm building a career. Thank God God ripped that out of me and like made me wildly I mean, he didn't do it through <laughs> he didn't do it through his works. I did it because I was an atheist. But thank God he used what the enemy meant for evil for his good, for my good, for his will, and my good, I should say. Because I was married at 23, 24, 24 years old. So glad because then I had kids at 27, 20, I think 28, 29, and 31 are when I had my kiddos. That was late. According to my biology, that is late. I was getting close to being a geriatric mama after 35. I think you're called like you have a geriatric pre- uh, pregnancy, which is hilarious, but we, we have, to, we can't ignore our biology. We can't ignore our nature, our, our like chemistry and the absolutely designed in instincts And I remember talking to a a friend of mine. I'll get back to my girlfriends that are not married yet. I remember talking to my girlfriend, gosh, 20 years ago in college. And she was like, I'm not getting married till I'm 40. And then I'll have kids. And even then I knew. I know why you're saying that. And I'm supposed to agree with you. Because culture and college and other women tell me that that's exactly what I'm supposed to do and exactly what I'm supposed to want. I'm supposed to go to college and I'm supposed to get my upper degrees and be really, really successful and make all my own money and not need a man. But maybe then after I for sure don't need a man, maybe then I'll choose a man (laughs) if one will have me and then I will have kids way past my biological time to have kids. And you know what that friend did? That friend I find really funny. Um, she kept on that path she went to the higher education and she became a lawyer and all those things and she did end up being very close to 40 when she got married to literally a friend because she wanted so desperately by that point to have a baby that she got married to a friend who she does not love who she did she is kind of still with it's hard to tell but the whole sole purpose was to have a baby of which she now has she no longer works as a lawyer (laughs) I'm like, how funny, right? Like in the end, your instincts win. I have another friend that's coming to mind also that did exactly the same thing, you know, steered as aggressively as she possibly could towards absolutely all the education she could possibly muster at the cost of hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt and a wildly inflated feminist ego to become, I think she was 39 when she got married to a 22 year old because at that point you have to because your peer man is married, right? And had uh, several miscarriages before she successfully had a baby. Thank God. I'm grateful for that. But because in the end, although she said that whole time, I don't want to get married. I don't want to have a baby. In the end, she did. In the end, she did because it's designed in to us. We cannot deny our nature. And this is what we're asking men to do. Deny your, your, deny and renounce your very nature, your very design, your very chemistry, deny and denounce it. It is evil. The thing that is created into you, the thing that is designed into you, that makes you uniquely you, that makes you stand in God's calling, deny that, renounce it, walk in defiance to it somehow. Because women have figured out how to walk in defiance to their own nature at the, their own, cost like at the cost of our of our own self at the cost of our own desires that we bury so deeply down I don't want to have them I don't want to have any kids I don't want to be married yes you do of course you do it's designed into you and in the end that is what you want in the end that is what you want so back to my girlfriends who are looking that are trying to date really do want to be married They have been trying to be married. It's not that they, they're not the girls that have been, you know, super career focused. Although maybe they would say, yes, we have been career focused and we maybe spent too much time doing that. But they do very much want to be married and want to have children. And they are seeking that out. And they are Christians and they are seeking Christian men. And I was shocked to find that what they are finding is shells of men everywhere they look. Every date they go on, they're seeing insecure withdrawn toxic toxically insecure men that do not know how to be men they they're waiting for the woman to tell them who to be that is so unattractive to me not just the feminine men but the number one thing that attracted me to my husband was his confidence now there is a difference between confidence and cockiness actually a radical difference because cockiness is actually wild insecurity trying to cover up for itself right Confidence is the absolute opposite of cockiness. Confidence is I know exactly who I am. I'm standing exactly in who God says. And I'm doing it humbly because there's no way else to be. Like, I'm just happy to be who I am. I'm content. That's what confidence is. I was so attracted to that in my husband. He is still to this day, I'm like, there's not an insecurity in you. I have not yet found one. What is, you are just absolutely not even human because of how lack of insecure you are. (laughs) I'm like, have some... Like, be ashamed of something, goodness gracious. And I'm, I'm exaggerating, of course. He is not perfect, but he is very confident. And that was so attractive to me because he knew who he was designed to be. That is absolutely lacking, apparently, in men of today. Young men, they're not confident. They don't know who they're supposed to be because their nature is telling them to be this. The world, culture, women are telling them not to be that, to be the opposite of that, to reject that, to be in defiance of that. What are we doing? What are we doing to our young men? My girlfriends are like, I just want a man to, like, play his role. Lead me. Lead me in the faith. Lead our family. Want to desire children. Want to desire to provide. I want a man who stands in the biblical definition of what a man is. And they can't find it because we're trying to eliminate it from our world. And sadly, we're wildly successful. We are seeing... Women today, especially in their 30s, I I've was, found it very interesting that the great majority of th- uh, single 30-year-old women, the great, great majority, are far left, far leftist. And, of course, we know that we are breeding currently, right this minute, the most depressed, anxious, and medicated generation ever to walk the face of the earth. So you would think, if we're doing it right, that we are setting people free. If we are doing what is good, not just what is good, but what is for our good. If we are doing what is for our good, we should see the most confident, free generation of men and women that we have ever seen. And we're seeing the exact opposite of that. What we are doing is not working. We are making people Women and men, because of toxic femininity, not toxic masculinity, toxic masculinity doesn't exist, or I should say very uncommon. It is very uncommon. Please tell me, how many men do you know in your entire life that you would truly say are toxically masculine? It is like two I can think of. In all the men I've ever known in my life, like two are truly toxically masculine, not addicted or broken or hurt or whatever, or cocky. Those are different things. Those are not, that's not toxic masculinity. In my brain, the definition, and of course, what we're trying to say, toxic masculinity is a truly oppressive chauvinistic man. There are so few of those that are just on their face, oppressive and chauvinistic. There are just so few men like that, truly like that. So the toxic masculinity that that we're defining as that hardly exists. Now, the toxic femininity is all over the place where I want to deny my very nature, deny what I'm designed to do, deny all my instincts and, and abandon all that for the promise that culture has for me, that I will be happier and better if I don't need a man, if I make my own, you know, career and I'm wildly successful on my own and make as much money as any man can possibly make, then I will be happy. And maybe then if I choose, I will pick a husband and have babies later in life. Well, it's not working out. It's not working out. We are not doing better. It is not for our good. It is not for our good. So I am fully abandoning this toxic masculinity conversation and I'm calling it what it is, toxic femininity. Again, we could write a book. We could discuss this endlessly because it is just so wildly present We don't even know the trap that has been set for us. We don't even know how far away from God's design and intention for our good, for his will and our good, we have wandered. (laughs) So I invite you to reject it with me. Call it what it is. Be aware of what it is. Teach our children what it is. And just move back into alignment with what God has. That's what I've got for you today. Hey guys, thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate this podcast and tell all your friends. And of course, catch me over at gainingmyperspective.com. Dear Lord, let us trust you. Let us trust and listen to your wisdom, your design, your created order. Let us return to that, Lord. Let us dive into the word of God and re-understand it for what you have. And recognize, let just put deep in our hearts, Lord God, that you are higher, better, sovereign, all knowing, you have a plan. And it is for our good. And whenever we try to do it in our own strength, we do it wrong. And when we submit to what you have, it is so much better than what we could have ever created on our own, Lord. Bring us back into alignment. Let us let us be the, foref- the at the forefront, those of us who are willing to pray this prayer and listen to your answer. Bring us back into your created order, Lord. Let us be the leaders in this. Let us be unashamed to be who you have designed us to be and the roles that you have given to us. Let us not be ashamed of that. In your son's name we ask. Amen.